From the team at Waterstones, welcome to What Is, a podcast where we discuss interesting tech. I'm Paul, and today I'm joined by Carl, who's a PhD student at Durham University focusing on post-quantum cryptography. And he's here today to discuss with me the topic of quantum computing, what does it mean, and how will it affect us? So, Carl, do you want to start by explaining to me a little bit about what quantum computing means and why does it matter um, to us? Okay, well, I'll start by talking a little bit about what a classical computer is. So most of you will know what these are. You're probably listening to this podcast on one of them. So a classical computer is something where the data is normally in bits. So these are a naught or a one. And then there'll be a series of logic gates. So this is just kind of logical operations like an and or an or. And all of this is kind of built up. We've got some memory in there and they can do calculations. Every time I run something on the same bit of data, I should get the same answer. A quantum computer doesn't use noughts or ones or bits. It uses something called a qubit, which is a superposition of noughts and ones. So what that really means is it's not a naught, it's not a one. It's normally something in the middle. And we do tend to know what this is within some form of probability distribution. So you may be wondering, why does not knowing exactly what a value of something is help? So it means we can do things a lot quicker because we're we can make use of this probability. So the most common example people use is an algorithm called Grover's algorithm. So on a classical computer, if I've got a database with names and I want to find someone's name, it takes me, I have to go through every name to find it. Now, with a quantum computer, I can guess what the name is within without going through all of them. In fact, I only have to go through about the square root of the amount of names in the database. So this is quite a bit of a speed up. And that's one of the very simple examples of what a quantum computer can do to help people kind of every day and how it is slightly better in most cases than a normal computer. Yeah, uh, and uh, I think it's really interesting from my perspective when I look at when you talk about what a classical computer is. That's really the only computer we've known and the only computer we've really dealt with for 40, 50, 60 years, however long we really think computing has been about. So quantum computing it, that we're talking about now is really the first fundamental redesign of what computing is. Is that correct? I mean, you could argue that. So very, very early computers would use cogs or there'd be some that were based off telephone switchboards. But even then, that's more sort of like the way we use inputs and the way we transmit the data has changed slightly. A quantum computer really is kind of a, a complete overhaul in the way we almost view the numbers. We're not viewing them as a naught or a one. We are viewing them as this something in between this superposition. Um, so it, it's something that's kind of very new to the computer science community from the last few year, uh, decades even. And very, very different to what we're all used to having seen. Yeah, so what that means for us as a... I was going to say computing community, but it's wider than that, isn't it? Everyone uses computers or pretty much everyone uses computers. Um, so will quantum computing affect us all in, in that scenario? Or, or how are quantum computers going to penetrate that well-established realm of computing that exists today? It is a very interesting question. And it's one that's quite hard to answer since obviously we don't quite know what is going to happen. Um, and you hear all sorts of different things. So you have some people who think that we might have end up with some very, very large quantum computers that people will be able to access over the cloud. So similar to what IBM have set up at the moment. 
some people think we'll be able to have a quantum computer in every household that we'll be using quantum computers in our laptops. These are, it's quite interesting because these are probably the sort of questions that, that were being asked, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, when at the time quantum computers were something that would be about the size of a, sorry, normal computers even, would be something that were about the size of a house. Um, and it must be, have been incredibly hard for them to imagine how they could be shrunk down to the size of laptops, to tablets, to phones. So I'm always wary about saying too much about quantum computers because whilst I don't, un- well, I personally don't see how they could be shrunk down. A lot of people didn't think that classical computers could have been shrunk down, definitely not to the scale they are today. Yeah. And the reason why I suppose your current thinking would be that they can't be shrunk down um, is because they rely on a lot of very complicated technology or very difficult environmental settings or, or, or what is it? So it, it's mostly environmental settings. So the colder it is, the better it works, the, the less noise that is added. And it's the noise that's the main issue with quantum computers at the moment. By noise, we're not talking about me and you speaking into a microphone. We're no, not actual noise. It's So with classical computers, we have wires that transmit the bits, and it's normally done via voltage. So zero volts is a naught, five volts is a one, and we have sort of like maybe sort of like a 10% gap where we'll say actually anything from like zero volts to 0.1 or 0.2 volts is a naught, and anything from five all the way down to sort of like 4.8. Obviously with a quantum computer, you don't have that sort of 3.8, 3.6 volt gap in the middle. Um, so you've got this, well, uh, they're all a lot closer together, which means that a slight bit of noise or small error could change what you think it the result is right so they do use error correcting codes or quantum error correcting codes. so this is just detecting if there's been a small error and trying to correct it but at the moment some of them applying the error correcting code can give you a worse result than not having it just because of the amount of noise one of the big factors is temperature and having them in a very very cold we're not talking britain in winter we are talking about you know, less than like minus 150 degrees Celsius. So that's one of the main factors is actually trying to keep them that cold. Having said that, at a tech expo a couple of, well, I think it was last year now, uh, one company did release a very small, by small I mean probably something like two metres by two metres by two metres um, and a quantum computer. It would be a small quantum computer and it didn't have many of these qubits, so the superposition bits, uh, but a quantum computer all the same. Yes. So you mentioned IBM when we were talking there, and I think obviously this has just hit the news again um, recently because of Google and IBM, I suppose, arguing a little bit about what, what Google announced regarding quantum. Um, do you want to explain a little bit exactly what Google did announce um, and what I've seen is obviously they announced they achieved quantum supremacy. Is that correct? And, and what does that mean as, as a thing? So Google announced that they had a quantum computer that could run a, or solve a specific problem in 200 seconds and that a classical computer trying to solve the same problem would take 10,000 years. Now, that is a massive time difference. So I guess there is a a few things we need to analyze here is that, one, did the quantum computer actually solve the algorithm in 200 seconds? 
everyone does seem to agree with that. That is, they did run the run it on an actual quantum computer. They can show you the data. The second question is, does it take 10,000 years to run on a classical computer? Well, obviously no one has tested that. Otherwise, we'd be in some form of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Deep Mind situation. But IBM claim that actually it could be run in two and a half days. This is with a slight caveat that they say it would run in two and a half days on a supercomputer that they're still in the process of building. So both of these figures have to be taken with a pinch of salt, but two and a half days versus 10,000 years is itself a, a massive difference. So the next question is, what does this 200 second versus potentially two and a half days mean? And I guess one thing that most people would be interested in is what is this problem that they've solved? Is this something that a problem we will be using every day and want to be solved? So the problem is they took some, or rather they generated a random quantum circuit and wanted to find the result of it. So on a quantum computer, that's quite easy because the quantum computer can very easily run the quantum circuit. On a classical computer, it's quite a bit harder because trying to write out a quantum circuit takes up a lot more space than you would expect, partly because it's not there isn't a very easy way of expressing superpositions of bits or even the quantum gates in terms of normal gates. So Google got this 10,000-year figure by basing it on an algorithm where all the data was stored in RAM. So most RAM we use is sort of like a couple of gigabytes in size. I think they were quite generous with the figure they gave. But even then, they said that actually with the, the space-time trade-off on a classical computer and being constrained by that amount of RAM, it would take 10,000 years. That statement is correct, and IBM don't disagree with that statement. The statement they have made, however, is that a computer doesn't just have RAM. It also has a hard drive. These are sort of normal, normally several terabytes in size. And when you're looking at a supercomputer, a lot more than several terabytes. Now, obviously, using the hard drive itself as RAM doesn't work very well and can be a lot slower. But it does mean you have a lot more memory. And then when you look at the memory time trade-off for this particular algorithm, it could run in two and a half days. Again, the only supercomputer with enough space to run this in two and a half days is one that is still being in the process of being built. Hopefully, once it has been built, they will verify for us that it did take two and a half days. And then that would be a, quite an interesting paper to see in itself. So then the next question is, one of these companies claims that it's quantum supremacy. One claims it isn't. So what is quantum supremacy itself? So there is the, the original definition, which of course, unfortunately, predates the actual use of a quantum computer. So it was back when it was more of an idea than something that actually existed. And of course, back then, classical computers were nowhere near what they are at the moment. Broadly speaking, quantum supremacy, depending on which group uses it, most often the media, could mean anything from a quantum computer being able to do something that a classical computer can't at all, full stop, or a quantum computer being able to do something quite a lot faster than a classical computer, or a quantum computer being able to do something slightly faster than a classical computer. So the actual 
definition is that a quantum computer can do something with a quasi-exponential speed up to a classical computer. Now, this phrase quasi-exponential probably doesn't mean much to anybody listening. In fact, even if you talk to some of the PhD students who look at computational theory, it doesn't really mean much to them. It's a slightly weird definition. What this basically means is that something takes an order of magnitude more time on a classical computer than a quantum computer. So if you, we like to measure this in terms of functions. So for example, if a classical computer is taking an exponential amount of time based on the input, then a quantum computer, if it has achieved quantum supremacy with this algorithm, would take maybe a linear amount or a a small quadratic amount. It's quite hard to decide if this has been the case here. If it is the 10,000 year figure, then it probably would have been. With the two and a half days, it's a little bit more dubious. Either way, whether it's actually achieved quantum supremacy <clears throat> is more of a, a point for the, the quantum physicists themselves and the people who really care about that. At the end of the day, what we need to take away from that is it's actually it's an incredible benchmark in that we have a quantum computer that is able to run actual algorithms very, very quickly. They might not be algorithms that at the moment we particularly care about, but they're still algorithms all the same, and it's running it a lot faster than a classical computer could. Indeed, even faster than a supercomputer could by a large order of magnitude. Hopefully, these quantum computers could then be turned to be focusing on tasks that we do care a little bit more about. So one of the other big important fancy algorithms that is using quantum computing is an algorithm called Shor's algorithm. What it actually does is it finds the period of a function. I'm not really going to go into much of what that means, but I'll talk about one of the things it does affect. It means that it could factorize a number into its primes in a polynomial amount of time, so relatively quickly. Now again, this probably sounds like a problem that only mathematicians would care about. The reason everyone should care about this is a lot of modern day crypto systems, so some of you might have heard of RSA, or even elliptic curve. RSA relies on the security of the fact that it's very hard to factorize a number into two distinct primes, if they are two distinct prime factors or just any number of factors. So if we had quantum computers that could do this, this could be incredibly dangerous. A lot of our security and a lot of our cryptography wouldn't work, or rather it wouldn't be secure. So the next question is, where are quantum computers at at the moment in terms of this? So at the moment, there are quantum computers that can factorize six-digit numbers into two distinct primes, where the two distinct primes are relatively close together. Obviously, with the crypto systems that we use to secure your bank details, that whilst it does use RSA, it uses much bigger prime numbers than that, and the two primes themselves are normally a lot further away than they are that this quantum computer has been able to break. And even then, whilst a quantum computer was able to break, or was able to factorize these numbers, it did still take them a long time. So this is where the post-quantum cryptography research group comes into. So there's people all over the world researching this, and their main question is, can we design a crypto system that is secure against a quantum computer? So we can't use a problem that Shor's algorithm can solve very quickly, so we need to come up with some new ones. There's various different ones that are knocking around. 
some of them that are actually based on crypto systems from the 1970s. Some of them are crypto systems that were created even since I started my first degree at Durham, so only sort of a matter of years ago. All of this has come about because NISA, this is the US National Institute for Standards and Technology, have released or announced a, what some people call a, not a competition, competition. So this is a, a standardization process where they want us to come, where they want the cryptographic community to come up with a number of crypto systems that are secure against quantum computers, but they do run on classical computers. NIST launched this call in around 2015-2016 with the aim of us perhaps having a few standards out by about 2022-2023. Most of you are going to be going, well, we don't have quantum computers yet. Why do we need it to be started so quickly? So the real answer is everything moves quite slowly. It would take a long time from when they're standardized for us actually to implement them everywhere. And also, if you think about it, if you want to encode a message and hide its contents, you want it to be secure for more than a few days, you want it to be secure for several years. So we need to make sure we start using these algorithms even decades before we actually have a quantum computer that could break our current algorithms. Unfortunately, there are a lot of downsides to the current algorithms that are used for post-quantum cryptography, mostly that they create very, very, very large ciphertexts. So if I try and encrypt a 256-bit message, um, so 256 bits is maybe a couple of letters, the output is, even on the smallest ones, over 13 times the size. On the larger ones, we're looking at several, over 100 times the size. That's, that's quite a size increase, isn't it? it? It is quite a size increase, but it does come with the peace of mind of knowing it is completely secure. Yes, it's not going to be broken by a classical computer. It's not going to be broken by a supercomputer. It's not going to be broken by a quantum computer at all, unless they something really, really weird happens. Yeah, and depending on where we're going to use that, that might be okay if it was a bank card number, for example. That's not going to be a huge message in the first place. If yeah. it was an email, on the other hand, that could be huge and probably impractical to use. Yeah. So we do already have some crypto systems that are secure against quantum computers. One of them is called AES, the Advanced Encryption Standard. And this, because of the way it's structured, it isn't broken by Shaw's algorithm. You do still get this square root speed up from Grover's algorithm, but it's very, very simple for us to make this more secure. Instead of encrypting a 256-bit message as a 256-bit ciphertext, we use a larger version that encrypts a 512-bit message as a 512-bit ciphertext. Obviously, there is, there's no blow-up here. It's a very, very small still. And this is what everyone uses day-to-day. The problem is, the same key is used to encrypt it is decrypt it. And the fundamental issue is, how do I give you that key so you can encrypt or decrypt with it? So this is where we use what's called public key cryptography, and these are the crypto systems that, well, in the past included RSA, and in the future will be some of these post-quantum crypto systems. So they're only really used to transmit small messages anyway, just small keys. Yes. The biggest use is probably going to be on the internet, because every time you want to log onto a website, log onto a website where you want to secure details, they'll first transmit the the public key for you to encrypt the stuff with you will then get their 
they will decrypt that. You'll get the actual, between you, you'll share an actual key and that will be used for transmitting the secure messages. Yeah, so to to boil it down a bit, because we obviously got quite in-depth into the technical details of, uh, of cryptography there, didn't we? Um, we're not changing hugely what we do today. We've still got the same underlying AES um, security. Um, but what AES security relies on is this one string that is a key um, that allows someone at the other end to decipher the message that I've sent them. Yes, exactly. Today, we encrypt that using something that is very difficult for computers to reverse um, without having the, the prior knowledge they need to be able to reverse it. And that relies on prime numbers and large prime numbers and basically, was it Shaw's algorithm? Shaw's algorithm, Shaw's yeah. algorithm that to actually work in encryption. What quantum potentially will do, and I think Google's announcement, whilst focusing on a different problem and not Shaw's algorithm, is kind of indicative of the advances being made in this area. Mm-hmm. That sort of brings this to the attention that that this may become a problem in the next few decades that actually sees the light of day is that a quantum computer will be able to do this in a reasonable amount of time as opposed to an unreasonable amount of time um, that a regular computer would take to be able to do this. And therefore, what was once secure, because there was no known computer that could actually deal with it, suddenly becomes less secure or totally insecure because you just throw the problem at a quantum computer and it will give you an answer in a matter of hours, minutes, maybe even less. Um, therefore, someone in the middle who did accept that could go away to quantum computer, uh, com- quantum computer, get the answer, and decrypt this supposedly secure message. So what we're looking for is doing that problem differently so we can send that key across in such a way um, that it is now secure. Okay, so quantum computer. Yeah, that, yes. that sums it up quite nicely, yes. Awesome. So that's what you're looking at and, and the research that, that you're doing. Yep, with that's this, my main focus. Yeah, yeah, with this team of people. Um, and obviously you've said 2022 is is when we want to actually have these standards produced. So you're working quite quickly towards this, I imagine. Uh, it, it's one that the whole community as a whole is having to work very quickly. Some people say we should slow down and try and make sure they are actually secure because we've not been studying these algorithms for very long. Some people are saying, no, we need to be going a lot quicker because we need to make sure that we have things ready for when we have quantum computers. The speed at which we work or if people want to work depends mostly on how soon they believe a quantum computer will actually exist. With cryptography, we like to deal with worst case. We don't really, if it's best case, that's fine. We're not needed. But it's, it's only worst case that the cryptography is even really needed. It's only once all the cybersecurity stuff that you use is broken that you really get to the message. But worst case, we still need over 10 years before a quantum computer, if we want them to be secure. And then before that, it does take another 10 years for us to implement them. Looking 20 years into the future is incredibly difficult. If you consider where computers were 20 years ago, you can perhaps understand why it's something that's very hard for people to try and work out. Or rather, instead of thinking of where computers were 20 years ago, consider what you thought about computers 20 years ago, even. Uh, the one that I always like to use in this scenario is 20 years ago, an iPhone 
we're still six, seven, eight years away, I think, from being launched. Whereas today you've got iPhones in your pocket that are more, way more powerful than the computers you would have been using in your home 20 years ago. So that level of advancement is, is huge and it makes it very hard for us to predict what 20 years into the future looks like in, in computing terms. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why we always work with this worst case and we just assume that it will be existing in 20 years because then if our worst fears do come true, we're secured against them. If they don't come true, it doesn't matter. We're already secure still. um, So one of the things people are looking at is are there some we're we're more happy with with the security and perhaps release those earlier? On the flip side, some people are saying, well, what if we're never completely confident with these can we create a hybrid that combines one of these modern ones with perhaps even RSA or combine several of our modern ones together and create something that is even more secure? So a lot of these are all being looked into. It's different methods. Um, one of the things that is being looked into is for some of them, their focus is could we reuse some of the hardware that already exists by the, especially when we're using small microchips that at the moment already implement the RSA algorithm. Can we reuse any of their architecture to make it very easy to upgrade them to use these um, quantumly secure crypto systems? But at the end of the day, it's something that, whilst it does sound quite scary to businesses, thinking that all their data could be, um, their crypto systems could be broken, their data released, it's something that is already in hand There is already international groups of people working on this. Um, There's already annual or there's several conferences that every year exist just focusing on making sure we have systems that are secure against quantum computers. So in terms of the risk, it's something that's already being managed. What people need to start looking at is the possible benefits. So there are some people who look at quantum computers who are not looking at just quantum algorithms, but are looking at classical algorithms that partly run on a classical computer, but then they would have small parts of it that would run on a quantum computer. So this is quite similar to the GPU in a normal computer. You probably have the, well, you almost definitely have a GPU in your computer, especially if you do gaming, you'll be using it for rendering all the graphics. When they do that, they don't, we don't just have a GPU in the computer. The GPU doesn't do all the addition. It, it doesn't do a lot of the things that the CPU can do. It could do them. It would do them a little bit slower. At the end of the day, why waste fancy technology on something that can be done very simply by the CPU? So this is why we use a CPU and a GPU. So the CPU will solve kind of a lot of the very simple problems and then stuff that a GPU can really have this use the speed up for, the GPU uses. So the argument is we could do this with quantum computer with quantum computers we could get the classical computers to focus on the bits that they're good at and then any small bits that a quantum computer could speed up get the quantum computer to do pass its result back to the classical computer and then it can carry on and finish the calculations now at the moment we only have very small quantum computers but people are still trying to find real life problems that people actually care about that would impact you that could be sped up by using a quantum computer so i ibm are an example here aren't they where they've got their cloud quantum service i believe where they make available what is a tiny amount of quantum computing power at the moment but make it available to anyone 
to use their cloud service to, I suppose, hopefully inspire people to research and look into exactly what they could do with with solutions like you're talking about there. Yeah, that's right. So it's not just IBM. There are other companies that have also got these cloud-based quantum computers that anybody could use. So this is absolutely incredible because up until recently, quantum computing was, especially if it was taught in a classroom, would be very theoretical. Now there's a chance for people to implement small algorithms and actually run it on a quantum computer which even five years ago would have been completely impossible. It's uh, You could come up with these algorithms, but unless you're at the top of your field, there'd be no way you'd even be allowed near any form of hardware that would actually be able to run or test these. So with IBM having these, these cloud-based ones, it's very easy for researchers to actually trial what they've been coming up with. If we do come up with any of these hybrid algorithms that use both classical computing and quantum computing they could then be used and actually exploited on these cloud-based ones. But it's also a really good opportunity, especially for people in university doing their degree in physics, looking at quantum computing or even in computer science with a focus, to actually be able to try out and use these, uh, which is an opportunity that, again, even a matter of years ago, they would never have been able to dream of. Microsoft has also come up with a quantum programming language called Q-Sharp, to uh, which works with a lot of these cloud-based quantum computers to make it easier for people to actually try things out i've had a look at that and it's a little bit it's a lot to get your head around if you're used to classical programming yeah it is something it's again that's kind of harks back to something you said earlier that it really is a completely a complete paradigm shift in what we consider computing to actually be in the sense that we're, we're not dealing with nor or one we're really dealing with more probability distributions and how we can manage them yes so th- there's one thing you said um a few times actually throughout this podcast which has sort of piqued my interest a bit which we've been talking about quantum computers and what exists today but you've also used the phrase of when a com- quantum computer exists so i suppose in your head there's this differentiation between what exists today and what actually meets the definition of a quantum computer in your head. So do you just want to go a little bit more into why you would use that phrase? What is a quantum computer? There's several debates. At the moment, whilst we do have several quantum computers with several qubits, so the one that Google used uh, in the algorithm that ran in 200 seconds had, I believe, around 43 or 44 qubits in. So this is hardware that works just for that algorithm. So there's a difference between having a large number of these qubits and what is often referred to as a an actual logical qubit in the sense that some of these algorithms can only run for so long before the noise becomes too high and you can't make any sense of what the output is or the algorithm will just stop working. Once you either have enough qubits, you can simulate a standard qubit that is almost noise-free or eventually we could get one without noise. Um, if you look at some of the really, really early computers, they were used for random number generators for the lottery. Those computers could only do one task. Would we call them computers? I mean, it can do one thing that at the end of the day I could probably do by getting all the coins out of my wallet and repeatedly flipping them. If we compare that to what our computers can do, it, it's not something we would refer to as a computer. Back then, it was revolutionary. Yeah, so I suppose it's the technical term of a computer. By definition, yes, it is 
computing something, so it is there for a computer, is it what you or I would expect a computer in our house to be like? Not at all. Yeah. So it's a again what Google have done. We were incredible benchmarks. There are lots of companies. They've all almost every year they're producing something that's brand new. That's uh, more qubits than ever before. It's something that's running faster than ever before, and it's a really exciting time to be looking at quantum computers. Are we going to get a quantum computer, one in every household in the next decade? Personally, I think probably not. My belief is that it's something that it will remain a bit like what IBM has, where we might get incredibly large quantum computers, but they'll only be accessible through the cloud, especially since it does require a lot of specialist hardware and technology to actually get them running, keep them cool. Um, Again, would you consider that a proper computer? At the same time, we also have huge supercomputers. They're only accessible over the cloud. They are absolutely our computers. Yeah. So I think probably to look at, begin to wrap this up, um, the, the last thing I'm really interested in, I suppose our listeners probably are interested in as well, is when we do get this, what we would consider to be a computer, or I suppose what we're currently in but but more powerful and, and capable to solve more difficult problems what do you think and there's a bit of guessing here i know um that impact's going to be on everyday people and, and businesses how are those going to change business or be used by business are they going to be used by business what what will we see quantum computers change about the way the world is now so at the moment a lot of businesses they create a lot of data and they want to analyze that data so quite often they will use a some form of cloud computing that will run analysis on that data. A quantum computer would be able to do that quite a lot faster, an order of magnitude faster. By being able to do that a lot faster, it gives a lot more possibilities for what data the company could analyze, what output they could get. I mean, I mean that by itself is is dramatic in in terms of what we can do because a lot of problems businesses have today is analyzing their data isn't it in terms of um big data and and all of those common phrases we see so actually being able to gather that huge amount of data and have a quantum computer give you answers within seconds would be i can imagine particularly big companies like microsoft and google could make huge insights in a very short amount of time i mean again i think that's something that is is all quite far in the future at the moment. We have machine learning that could also do it incredibly fast. Um, if we are, if people are able to implement machine learning on a quantum computer, then that could be incredibly impressive and would do it a lot faster. Um, but there's at the moment a lot of focus on the algorithms. There aren't huge algorithms that are useful to people. That it's got the speed ups. Um, the most important, the one I think that people find quite useful is Grover's algorithm, more just for searching through large amounts of data quite quickly. Um, but there's all sorts of different algorithms. So when you're, um, if you've got optimization problems, a lot of them can be solved quite a bit quicker on quantum computers, especially if you use some form of hybrid algorithm. Um, so whilst that wouldn't allow us to do anything we're not doing at the moment, so we are still solving these optimization problems. We're not going to be able to solve them better because, again, we're already solving them. It does mean we might be able to solve larger optimization problems. And faster. And faster, yeah. Um, where does like research 
fit into this because I know one of the big technical challenges with computers at the moment is things like scientific medical research or protein folding and, and things like that to try and do huge amounts of that. I know that's a huge amount of data. Is is quantum suitable for that sort of research or do you know? So at the moment, a lot of that research is being done using machine learning. Um, I don't think it's something that might it might necessarily be suitable for quantum computers. I think a lot of the research that's being done at the moment is more making quantum computers a little bit more practical. But also, at the moment, if you want to be able to properly use a quantum computer, you pretty much need to have a degree in physics to focus in, in quantum computing itself. So one of the things a lot of people are looking at at the moment is how can we make it easier for perhaps not a layman, but someone who is an expert in one of the problems they want to try and solve how can they make it easier for them to actually use these quantum computers? How can they do some form of knowledge transfer that would then allow to marry a, say, a computational problem or a computational chemistry problem so it could be solved by a quantum computer? Neither parties are able to do it by themselves. It's one that it would require, it does require both parties to have a lot of knowledge of each other's field yeah. to be able to properly come up with these algorithms. Oh, that's perfect. I've, I find the whole subject fascinating because... Um, being involved in in computing quite heavily um this is a growth of a new field within computing um in fact maybe a new not start but a new phase of what computing really means so being here and now where these computers are very niche and not able to do very much right now but have a huge amount of potential is really really exciting so imagine working in that field must be very interesting on a day-to-day yeah, basis just hearing about a lot of the, all of the stuff that goes on to be honest even just working as a researcher in a computer science department hearing some of the stuff that goes on when i talk about some of the stuff at open days i often don't believe the own research that's actually being done because of how just incredible it sounds i've seen them do it i've one of the big examples I like using is they have it so that you can basically mind control a robot. So you can, uh, just by focusing on certain parts of the screen, you can control whether the robot moves left or right. So it requires no movement on your part. You just wear one of those like ECG hats or whatever it is. And... To me, that absolutely astounds me. It feels like I'm in some form of sci-fi novel. Quantum computing is its very similar. We're doing things that we thought would be almost impossible to solve, or at least very, very, very difficult to solve in a matter of seconds. Um, and in reality, I guess the possibilities are, are endless. It's, it's very hard to say, oh, you need to be realistic with this sort of thing, especially when you consider where computers were you know 20 30 years ago and the huge changes they've gone through what can we expect from quantum computers will they go through those changes at the same speed that classical computers have will they go through them quicker uh, i guess part of that is how much effort people put how much time how much money goes into the research but yeah, it's one of these fields that's incredibly hard to predict and every, almost every day there's this a new headline that sounds incredibly exciting yeah i'm definitely very excited to see where it goes and i think that's a good place to leave it as well i think we've, we've covered the subject pretty well so thank you very much for for joining me today carl it was really really interesting for me to find out about it some more um 
and yes that's that's all we've got time for today um as always um if you're interested in seeing a little bit more about waterstones you can go to our website that's waterstones.com um and if you want to follow us on twitter at the podcast um we are at what is underscore podcast other than that thank you very much for listening and until next time